Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, the podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 251, Anaphora and Muhammara, Thursday, June 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. Each time I record an episode, I post show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. I also keep pretty up-to-date notes about all of the knitting projects that I'm working on on my page on Ravelry, and I am Sarah Pomegranate there. This episode includes the following segments, the back porch, power pantry, and off the shelf. I really appreciate your listening and sending notes and messages over the course of the last few weeks. I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is having an impact on folks' usual podcast listening, so I'm very appreciative that many of you are catching up on episodes and getting in touch to let me know what you enjoy about the podcast. And if you're still with me after hearing that title, I think you're in for a pretty good episode. And I also plan to record again in very short order a small podcast that will be all about my upcoming pattern release. It's the first pattern in a collection I'm doing over the course of the year, all patterns based on inspiration from Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Women Who Run With the Wolves. The first design release is a sock design. It's coming on Saturday the 20th, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. I just have some finishing touches, and then I want to record an episode all about it. I'm over at the studio very early this Thursday morning. It is our last day of school instruction. Teachers still have some responsibilities for wrapping it up and grades and meetings and all that kind of thing. But today is the student's last day and our last day of instructing them. It has been 60 days of home instruction since we left the building on March 13th. And it has been a roller coaster of emotions and challenges um, and interactions with students, some amazingly positive and some really trying um, and, and very difficult. So it's, it's good to bring things to a close and to see um, what our next step will be in terms of opening in the fall. Uh, the students have a virtual graduation next week and the seniors have elected to have a students only um, ceremony, no parents, um, to comply with Governor Murphy's rules about numbers for a gathering. Teachers have been invited, and I hope to witness the graduation um, in mid-July. Okay, let's get to the knitting. <laughs> On the back porch is Rift, 
a design for a cropped summer tea by Jacqueline Seaslack. This has been really popular. Lots of folks are knitting it, and it has many different options. Jacqueline Seaslack's patterns are truly excellent for a lot of reasons. She designs for a wide range of sizes and body types. She gives lots of different kinds of adjustment so that you can get the fit you want and get a garment that looks great on you. That takes a lot of time and thought and development uh, to make a pattern like that. And I really admire her. She always has some clever little detail that actually ends up being a structural detail in the knitting. And Rift is very much like Ursa in that regard, um, but it's for a, a lighter weight yarn and um, more of a warm weather wear. I very much enjoyed knitting this pattern in Green Mountain Spinnery's Cotton Comfort, which I harvested from another project that worked out at really too dense a gauge for summer wear. That design was Summer by Ankastrick, and I do plan on knitting another version of that in a lighter weight yarn and hopefully having better success. But I just love this cotton comfort. It's in the silver colorway, which is an undyed colorway. And um, I had a lot of, of course, breaks and stuff in my yarn. There were a lot of problems with it, but I just you know, kept knitting, I wove in ends, and the result is really great. I made mine quite cropped with a much longer um, back hem than front hem, kind of has a split hem detail. I did incorporate bust starts because I tend to go down in needle sizes when I knit a pattern to get a stitch gauge that works out. That usually means my row gauge is quite a bit less than what's called for. And so my fabric doesn't build as quickly. This is particularly important in the bust because with a crop sweater where you can see the hemline all the way around very clearly, you don't want that front rising up. So I did put in kind of a modified version of her smallest size of bust darts. I love the way she does them with German short rows, and it was just enough to keep the front of the top um, even with the back and not pulling up. I, I just adore, I adore the top. It's great with little summer shifts and dresses as another layer. Um, it's very comfortable to wear. I didn't make it quite as oversized as... Her design suggests, but it's a bit oversized and super comfortable. I have put photographs of my finished project up on Ravelry with some details about the things that I did. One place where I veered from her directions is that I did not use a three needle bind off to seam up the shoulders. I used a Kitchener stitch. As I said, I'm always concerned about row gauge and the three needle bind off eats up some of the fabric up there 
and I thought I would achieve a little bit more length um, in the armholes and in the neckline in general by doing a Kitchener stitch and adding just a little bit of fabric at the shoulder instead of cinching it up. I'm very pleased with that. It sits very comfortably on the shoulders and yeah, I just love it. I love it. I would like to knit another one um, and maybe try some of the different variations that she has in her pattern. So I can highly recommend Rift by Jacqueline C. Slack. A few weeks ago, my mom told me about a pair of socks that I had knit. She said it was the first pair that had started showing signs of wear in the heels. And I said, well, the next time I come to visit you, how about you give them to me and I will make an attempt at darning them, which I have never done. So she agreed and she gave me her washed pair of socks. They're a pair of shorty socks in my Humblebee socks uh, pattern. And the heels were nearly blown through. She admitted to these being an absolute favorite uh, because they have a blue color. I knit them in Carol Foster's Northumberland yarn in like a variegated blue. She wears blue sneakers and she wears a lot of denim. So she was just really, as soon as they were coming out of the wash, she was putting them back on again. And these got a lot of wear. I think she's had them for about two years. So I have been looking through magazines uh, that I own and trying to really make use of recipes, patterns, and other things of interest in there. I don't subscribe to Making Magazine, but I do have a few issues, including issue five, which is the color issue, and which features a section on mending, different techniques in mending knitting by Bristol Ivy. So I looked through that and I decided that the woven patch technique would be optimal for reinforcing the heel. There, all of the stitches were intact. There were no holes. These socks were not blown through. But the yarn was so extremely thin in some places that I didn't really feel that the technique of doing duplicate stitch would be sturdy overall. And the weaving really intrigued me. So it's, uh, it's a little awkward because it was my first time doing it, but I managed to find some leftover yarn, Carol's yarn, the exact yarn I had used for the socks. So that was great. I was able to match the color and I created a woven patch on each of the heels. I have washed and returned these to my mom and I haven't heard yet about her um, thoughts regarding the comfort of the woven patch or how well that patch wears over time. But I will keep you updated. And I think for a first attempt at mending, it was 
It was really very comforting and uh, meditative to do. I think I was more motivated to do the mending because the socks are my mom's than if I were thinking about mending something of mine. I think I would put it in a pile and put it off. Whereas because these are my mom's socks, I just really wanted to get them fixed for her and to see what she thinks about the comfort of the work that I did. If you're thinking about doing some mending of any knitted garment, I can recommend Bristol Ivy's article in Making Magazine number five. She goes through several different techniques. There are very clear photographic illustrations and instructions, and it's a great way to uh, brush up on some darning and mending techniques um, for all types of things. So if you have that magazine in your library, I recommend you take a look. Inspired by Emily's photographs of her beautiful folded bolts of fabric in her crafting area, which I have seen in person and which is incredible. I just started to get this idea that I really needed to clean my crafting area. It was kind of overrun. There were a lot of odds and ends having to do with mask making. Things were a mess. It really needed a good dusting. I store books in that area and um, sewing is very dusty and dirty. Uh, it makes a lot of mess and I really need to remove every book from my shelf, dust it off, you know, go through everything. So I started doing this one afternoon when we had kind of a lull in the kitchen project and I just got way deep in it and I pretty much went through everything except my fabric stash, which is kind of ironic because the fabric was what had motivated me, but that is mostly rolled and um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that right now. So I left that as is and I tackled kind of the rest of the space. And somewhere along the line, as I was cleaning things out, I started to think about my knitters in String Theory Club. We've met virtually several times since our home instruction began. I have some graduating seniors and some underclassmen, and I just started thinking about how if we were meeting in person, I would probably bring some things you know, that I had called from my crafting room and said, you know, here, does anybody want any of these things? I do that every so often. And then before I knew it, I was kind of making piles on my bed for each one of my knitters. And I managed to put together a nice little package for each of them. And that included books. I had some different books, um, not all on crafting, some literature and other things. I had yarn, I had project bags, I had just little odds and ends of things that I thought about each one of them and thought what they might enjoy. And then I packaged them up and sent them all out in the mail. And the other day, we met for our final String Theory Club meeting of the year, virtually, of course. 
And it was just so wonderful to see how happy they are with the things I chose for them and excited to do some crafting over the summer. That was wonderful on two counts. It felt so good to remove some things from my crafting area that I wasn't using or didn't have an immediate design for and to surprise my knitters with something special to sustain their crafting over the summer. Hashtag Power Pantry. I have been experiencing hummus fatigue. I don't know if you've been through this. Um, I am still uh, without a full kitchen. I have a very makeshift setup, and so I'm preparing very simple things. And my go-to uh, for a lot of snacks and lunches has been hummus, hummus and vegetables, hummus and pita, hummus and crackers. I developed a little snack, I don't know, it's been a couple of summers ago, where I take corn tortillas and I just put them in a non-stick skillet to heat them up and get a little color on them. And then I spread hummus over the tortilla and then I take one um, stick of string cheese and I shred it and then I put that on top of the hummus, just let it start melting and then I roll them up. And three of those makes like a nice little lunch. It's a really odd combination, but it's fast, it's simple, it's relatively mess-free, um, and I enjoy that, but I have been tiring of hummus. So I have, was talking to my sister, and I think it might have been in late March or early April, she had asked me for a recipe from Selma, uh, Selma of Little Big Knits, and Selma had brought to our Knit Local getaway last year a dish called Mohamara. It's made with red bell peppers and walnuts and is an incredible hummus-like consistency dip with amazing deep flavor, a real, there's a real like umami tang to it. And it's great for dipping bread, vegetables, and Jessica remembered that because she was at the retreat and I thought I had the recipe but didn't and Selma right away had texted that to me. Jessica took it and she did like I suspect many of us are doing. When she realized she didn't have all the ingredients, she started making some substitutions and riffing on the recipe. So when I told her about my hummus fatigue, she said, oh, you should try and make muhammara. And she gave me some of the adjustments she had made to her recipe. Um, most things are available at a health food store or a grocery store. It's just that I have abandoned the habit of running out for every little thing. I try to limit my trips. And if I don't have something, I try to make do with what's in my pantry. 
So Jessica's suggestions have resulted in a really tasty dip, and I'm going to post the recipe um, on my show notes for this episode in case you're interested in making it. But a little bit of background, I decided to do a little bit of research on Muhammara because until Selma brought it to the retreat, I had not heard of this, and I didn't really know that much about the origin. Selma had copied the recipe from a cookbook, but she wasn't sure which one it had been a while ago, and you know she's just been making this and loving it for years now. So I went online and found... Um, a Lebanese chef making her version of Muhammara. She referred to it as Lebanese ketchup. She called it a sauce, and she said that in her cuisine, she puts it on everything, with everything. She said it had really wide application in her Lebanese kitchen. But that the original version was from Aleppo in Syria, and the word muhammara comes from the Arabic for something red. So a consistent notion with this, even though there are varying recipes, is that there are red bell peppers. I actually used yellow and orange bell peppers, um, and it came out great. They are roasted, and then they are blended. Uh, food processor is a really great tool for this. They're blended, and the recipe that Selma gave us has toasted walnuts. Jessica substituted toasted sunflower seeds. I did a combination of both. And then I read further that soaking the nuts or sunflower seeds for 12 to 24 hours in water before blending makes them even softer. I haven't tried that, but I think I will next time because the texture of my muhammara is a tad grainy with the sunflower seeds. The walnuts are oilier and they tend to blend a little bit more readily. I found an otolenghi recipe that uses breadcrumbs and quite a few versions of this dip use breadcrumbs either in addition to or as a replacement for the nuts. Other ingredients include a garlic, squeezed lemon juice, pomegranate molasses is traditional. That is something that was not in my pantry, so I used sorghum syrup. You could also just use molasses, but something just a little sweet really elevates the flavor. Salt, cumin, red pepper flakes, and olive oil. When I make this, I seriously can't get enough of it. I just keep, you know, if I have a plate of carrot and celery sticks, I just keep dipping and dipping and dipping. It's so good. So I really urge you to try this. Um, if you're gluten-free, if you're nut-free, you could try the sunflower seeds. I think depending on your dietary restrictions, you could really make an interesting version of this dip. Muhammara. Do you already make Muhammara? I would love to know the ingredient list that you use. And if you try this recipe, I hope that you will let me know. And if you come up with any interesting 
substitutions or variations, I'm eager to try them because I envision myself using this as kind of a hummus substitute all summer long. Off the shelf. I have recently finished Curlew Moon after drawing out my reading for as long as I possibly could because I just didn't want the book to end. I enjoyed the journey so much, but I have finished and I passed that along to my mom. I think she'll enjoy reading that. And I have picked up Mudlarking by Lara Maklem. This book was recommended on Goodreads as, you know, if you liked Curlew Moon, you might enjoy Mudlarking. And indeed, I am enjoying reading it. It's a book about the Thames River in London being a tidal river of which I was not aware and it being a really vast archaeological site with lots of opportunities to make finds and learn about the past by looking in the foreshore, which is the area between um, high tide and low tide. So when the tide goes out, that area is exposed and centuries of different finds Uh, can be located there by amateur mudlarks. So she meets super interesting people. She talks about her finds. If you like The Detectorists, which is a British series, I think you will like mudlarking because it has the same kind of niche uh, appeal that someone I I enjoy books where someone is so very passionate about a very specific thing maybe that I know nothing about and the way Lara Maklem writes you can really get into it from her perspective and I feel myself getting just as excited about her finds as she is so I'm having fun reading that And today I thought I would share a poem with you. I often go on the Poetry Foundation website and I type in as a search term something I've talked about or plan to talk about in the episode. So I typed mending and as expected, mending wall um, was one of the first things that came up, but I knew that would come up and that was a little obvious. So I just kept searching and found a poem by Margaret Walker. The Poetry Foundation website gives a pretty extensive background on Margaret Walker and her contributions to writing and poetry. Um, She lived from 1915 to 1998, and she went to Northwestern, and she began a relationship with the Works Progress Administration first serving as a volunteer in their recreational area. Later on, she was offered employment through the Work Projects Administration's writing project in Chicago as an employee and a junior writer. 
She was even granted the opportunity to work mostly from home and only come into the office periodically because she was working on a novel. In this position, she developed a relationship with lots of different writers, including Richard Wright, and was really part of a a vibrant community of writers working at this time. The poem I'm going to share is titled For My People. It was published in the November 1937 issue of Poetry Magazine, and it features a literary technique called anaphora. So that's the title, Anaphora and Mohamara. Anaphora is a literary technique where parts of a sentence or a phrase are repeated throughout the work to build momentum and build power. And because there's a kind of rhythm when you do that, the word anaphora comes from the Greek meaning to carry up or carry back. And I think carry back is a really good meaning in the poetic context because it keeps reminding you of where the poem's going. One of the most popular examples of this in more contemporary writing is um, the I Remember Project. This is a little work by Joe Brainerd, and he combined poetry with memoir, and he just had little snippets throughout this book are little snippets, each beginning with I Remember. Some things are momentous. Some things are incredibly trivial, but put together, they, they build a, a life, a memory. And I was thinking that doing some writing exercise like that regarding our experience over the last few months might be a very interesting way of recording some details that you might want to remember. Sometimes when you're in a situation when you're very emotionally attached to things that are happening, it's difficult to get a lot of perspective and to really write about it. It's difficult to focus your mind. Uh, A lot of us are feeling very distracted. So that technique of just, just write a sentence, just write, I remember, finish the sentence, and then start your next sentence. I remember, finish the sentence, and just build that list that using that technique of anaphora could be a really helpful way of generating some writing that would be, that would really mark the unfolding contemporary events in a powerful way, but in a really accessible way. So I, I'm very grateful uh, for finding this Margaret Walker poem, which I am about to share with you, for reminding me of that technique of anaphora. And I think that this will help me do some journaling that I've been wanting to do, but really resisting. I think I'm going to try this technique and I encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Here is For My People by Margaret Walker. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, 
bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people, lending their strength to the years, to the gone years and the now years and the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. For my playmates in the clay and dust and sand of Alabama backyards, playing, baptizing, and preaching, and doctor, and jail, and soldier, and school, and mama, and cooking, and playhouse, and concert, and store, and hair, and Miss Chumby and company. For the cramped, bewildered years we went to school to learn to know the reasons why, and the answers to, and the people who, and the places where, and the days when in memory of the bitter hours when we discovered we were black and poor and small and different and nobody cared and nobody wondered and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew up in spite of these things to be man and woman to laugh and dance and sing and play and drink their wine and religion and success to marry their playmates and bear children and then die of consumption and anemia and lynching. For my people thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York and Rampart Street in New Orleans, lost, disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets and needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something, something all our own. For my people walking blindly, spreading joy, losing time, being lazy, sleeping when hungry, shouting when burdened, drinking when hopeless, tied and shackled and tangled among ourselves by the unseen creatures who tower over us omnisciently and laugh. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark of churches and schools and clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions, distressed and disturbed and deceived and devoured by money-hungry, glory-craving leeches, preyed on by facile force of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing, staring, trying to fashion a better way from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth rise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and a strength of final clenching be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let all the martial songs be written, let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control. <laughs>